John chapter 16, beginning in verse 12, and like I said, I'll read through the end of the chapter this morning. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records these words of Jesus. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father... So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. <clears throat> in that day, you will ask in my name, and, I, and I, um, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. As Christians, we regularly talk about revelation, and there's a couple ways that we use that word. One way that we use that word is to refer to the book of the Bible, written also by the Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, uh, and that book is capital R revelation about final, final things. Another sense in which we use the word revelation is a lowercase r revelation, which simply means and denotes things revealed. Revelation things revealed. The Bible is God revealing his truth, what we need to know about him and about ourselves and about how we live to us. 
God revealing what we need to know about him, about ourselves, and about how to live in light of his truth. Throughout the Gospels, throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and this Gospel, John, uh, Jesus is regularly speaking in figurative language. Uh, What he says in figurative speech, he says in metaphors and similes and parables and stories and uses these figures in order to drive home points and to, to make it known to his disciples what he's talking about. But there are often times throughout the gospel narratives where the disciples and the crowds and the people at large have little to no understanding of what Jesus is actually, actually talking about. That We see that as a theme throughout John's gospel. And now when we get to this passage, we see probably for the first time, at least in great measure, the disciples saying to themselves, we now know what you are talking about, Jesus. They say in verse 29, now you are speaking plainly. Jesus tells his disciples uh, what is about to happen to him and to them in a way that is understandable to them. He reveals to them with clarity what's about to take place in the next several hours. Remember, Jesus and the disciples have just left the upper room and he is on his way to the garden where he will be out of the garden, arrested, and then tried, and then, uh, and then convicted, and then crucified. He's hours away from his death and burial. And now, on the eve of his death, the incarnate word, the word who took on flesh, what we celebrate at Christmas, the word who took on flesh, Jesus Christ, speaks to his disciples plainly. Again, just hours before these things are going to transpire. Communication is a, a big part of our lives. We know this to be, to be, to be true. It's, it's really hard to have a healthy marriage or a successful career uh, if you struggle or are unable to communicate well. In fact, you probably miscommunicated with someone this week, maybe even this morning with your spouse or with your children or with someone even here when you arrived at congregational worship. Maybe you were the victim of poor communication and found yourself in a position where it was really awkward because you didn't have all the facts when you stepped into a situation. At the bank this week, I talked to my teller about the challenges she was having with getting her family together for the holidays, and they all boiled down to good communication. And I said, maybe I stepped out of line, but I said, just call them, get on the phone. But communication is a process of revelation. Revealing things to others about ourselves or about hopes, about desires, about plans that we're making that others are involved in. About the work that we're doing or the struggles that we're having. An example of bad communication is when you get home from work and your spouse asks how your day was and you reply, good. It's bad. It's bad communication. You might have said good, but it It's not great. Or when you grab the doorknob to head out to play a round of golf and your wife asks, where are you going? And you say, I meant to tell you, I'm going golfing and I'll be back in four hours. Jesus says in John 15, 15, he says uh, that all that he has heard from the Father, he has made known to you. Good timing, therefore, is part of good communication also. Not everything is meant to be disclosed all of all of the time. If I come home from a meeting late in the afternoon and the kids are hungry 
and you know what that meltdown city can be like. And then, uh, and, and I want to talk to my wife about a serious conversation that I had with someone else while she's trying to get food on the table. That's bad, bad timing. It's not good to, it's not good timing to start a serious conversation with my wife. Additionally, if you don't have, you don't need to have the, the birds and the bees conversation with your three-year-old. That's bad timing. Proverbs 15.23 tells us about good timing in our communication. It says, for, uh, to, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man. In a word in season, how good it is. We often spout out things that we think will be joyful to the people who are listening to us. But we miscalculate that it's actually the words that we're saying are actually for the spring and it's still winter time. It's the bad, bad timing. Jesus reveals to his disciples exactly what they need to hear and exactly when they need to hear it. Let me say that again. When we get to this passage and the disciples for the first time say, now you are speaking plainly to us, Jesus did not miscalculate the timing. He did not mess this up. It's like, oh, I should have shared this with you guys a little bit earlier, but no, this is the exact right time for them to hear what they hear from him. Jesus reveals to his disciples exactly what they need to hear, exactly when they need to hear it. Funny how this works. The incarnate word, the agency of creation, the one who stands behind everything that has been made, knows exactly the right time to say exactly the right thing. Proverbs 25.11 A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Jesus' words, like apples of gold, are always set in a setting of silver. So let's explore this text together. There's actually three things that I want to, to, to point out this morning that are going to guide our time together. Three things. First is this. Unrevealed truth promised. Second, an unasked question answered. And third, an irreversible peace given. Unrevealed truth promised, an unasked question answered, and an irreversible peace given. So first, an unrevealed truth promised. At the end of our passage last week, and we need to take all of this section together, thinking about the beginning of, and we can even go further back, but thinking about the beginning of of uh, of chapter 15 through uh, verse 11 and then verse 12 where Jesus commands his disciples to love one another and then our passage last week where we explored Jesus sending a helper and re- uh, realizing that there will be hardship and difficulty, tribulation in, in the world that's coming for the disciples. And at the end of that passage, Jesus says that a helper is coming. It's the spirit of truth. It's the Holy Spirit, who will help them endure in the face of persecution, in the face of exile, and in the face of death, and that the Holy Spirit will be the one who will give them the endurance in order to bear up under those things, in order that they might bear witness to who the person of Jesus Christ is. The Holy Spirit is the strength given to the believer in order that the, that the believer might say in a moment of persecution, moment of exile, moment of death, moment of tribulation, difficulty, suffering, Jesus Christ is still Lord. 
And so, in verse 12 of our passage, right at the beginning of our passage this morning, Jesus continues in this vein. He says that, there, he, ha- that he has still a lot of things to say to his disciples. He said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. We know from his previous words, and again, he's going to say it again in verse 16, that Jesus is going away. The details are not yet understood by the disciples, but he is going away. And by the end of our passage this morning, they're going to get a better picture of what that actually looks like. If Jesus is going away, however, and he has more to say, how will he say it? If Jesus has more to say, how is he going to say it when he's gone? I don't know if you ever have conversations like this where someone stops by your house or maybe your office or something like that and you started to shoot the breeze for an hour or so and then they stand up and they walk to the door and they put their hand on the doorknob and they turn the doorknob and they open the door and then they say, oh, by the way, and then they offer you some life-altering information. We call that a doorknob conversation or maybe a North Dakota goodbye, something like that. And then you're like, okay, um, if you walk out that door, then what? Because if you walk out that door, then I don't have the picture anymore. Um, in pastoral ministry, you say, no, come back in and sit back down. But Jesus is saying, I'm walking out the door. You're not going to see me again, but I have a lot more to say to you. And we're like, what is that? Where are we going? How are we doing this? And that's the nature of the disciples' question. The answer is found in verse 13. If Jesus is going away and he has more to say, how will he say it? Verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. The spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, will guide you into all truth. He will declare to you the things that are to come. But notice here what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. He says, he will not speak on his own authority. The spirit of truth will not speak on his own authority. This is not his role. The Holy Spirit's role does not include authoring the words that he speaks, but rather to speak what he, Jesus says, hears. This by no means indicates that the Holy Spirit is any lesser and not, he does not indicate that he is a lesser person in the Godhead. Father, Son, Spirit, co-equals. But it does tell us about his unique role. And so we should take special care here to heed what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. The role, the role of the Holy Spirit is to speak what he hears. And what's the goal of the Holy Spirit's speech? We find it in verse 14. He will glorify me, that being Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
And so, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and is therefore teaching and guiding and speaking and hearing as one who is in the closest possible fellowship and the closest possible union with God the Father and God the Son. Acts chapter 2 records the events at Pentecost when the apostles receive the Holy Spirit. And we see the evidence there of what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 16. The the slow-to-catch-on disciples that we see the portrait painted of in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of a sudden in Acts, have this incredible spiritual wisdom and knowledge. They see how scripture, all of it points to Jesus. And they stand up in front of groups of people who are hostile to them and declare to them the good news of Jesus Christ, who they crucified. And it happens over and over and over and over again. Unlearned men speaking the truth of who Jesus is and how all of Scripture points to him. And verse 13 in our text, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will guide them, will guide the disciples, and will guide to all who are in Christ to all the truth. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Sometimes this passage is interpreted to mean that this guiding was just for the disciples. Who would go in to write the New Testament and to teach the early church. But in reality, friends, this is given to those men who were with Jesus present in that moment, but there, this, is, this promise is also given to us, those who are in Christ. Peter, James, and John, and all the disciples were still present with Jesus. They received this promise, and the promise comes then to you and to me as well. For all who are joined to Christ by faith, that is to say, all who are true Christians, all who have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, they receive the Holy Spirit, who then gives supernatural light who then teaches and guides the Christian's understanding about spiritual realities. Every Christian, everyone who has professed the name of Jesus has received the Holy Spirit and therefore is taught and guided by the Holy Spirit. Before you were a Christian, before you came to Christ and left your sin, you did not have the ability to see hear, discern, know true spiritual things. You may know, have known about some spiritual things, but you did not have the Holy Spirit. You did not hear from him the truth about Jesus Christ. You may have mimicked other people who know true spiritual things, but you yourself did not, outside of Christ, did not know or have the ability to hear, to discern, to understand true spiritual things. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, if you are clinging to your sin and you are resisting Jesus Christ, if you are 
stuck in sin, trying to dig your way out. Know this. You do not know true spiritual things. And you don't even really know that you don't know true spiritual things. Probably like arguing in this moment. No, I know some, I know some spirituals. No, you don't. This text is clear. Because if you know that you're unable to do anything spiritually good on your own, only the Holy Spirit can reveal that to you. So if you know that apart from the Holy Spirit guiding you, you cannot know spiritual things, friend, come to Christ. Trust in Christ. Stop clinging to your sin. Your sin is manifesting itself in, I can do it myself. I can dig myself out of the hole. I know that I made uh, a few mistakes in my life. And I know that I've hurt some people and, and done some things, but largely I'm a pretty good person. You can't dig yourself out of the hole. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ. And if you see right now, and you think to yourself, I cannot know true spiritual things outside of Christ, then that's the Holy Spirit at work in you in this very moment. The next step is come to Christ, trust in Christ, leave your sin. To those joined to Christ by faith, previously unrevealed truth is promised. That leads us to our second thing in this text, however, and it's an unasked question answered. An unasked question answered. Look at verse 17. This is where the disciples have questions about what Jesus is saying. They don't ask. They talk amongst themselves. And in verse 19, even though the disciples don't ask, Jesus knows and answers. And then Jesus reveals in the right season, at the perfect time, what's coming in verse 20. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You're sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus is going away, but he will be back. The disciples, distraught over Jesus' words that they are leaving him, and now he tells them clearly that he, he, he's coming back. Their sorrow will be like a woman in labor. Jesus gives them a figure of speech. Like a woman in labor, knowing pain and disorientation in the moment. And so the disciples, in the same way, though, will have joy. Because when the woman has joy because a human being is brought into the world through her labor, so their sorrow will turn into joy because the defeated grave will give up Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. And so no one, Jesus says, No one will be able to take that joy from them. No one will be able to rob that from them. Look at verse 22. So you also will have sorrow now when Jesus is crucified. But I will see you again when he is raised. 
and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. No one will be able to rob this joy from the disciples. And when Jesus is raised, and again, in just a few short days from when he speaks these words to his disciples, this joy will be theirs. Verse 23, he says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. What he's saying here is they won't need to ask. They won't need to ask because they will have. They will have in full. It will be given to them. No one can take it from them. They don't say, I misplaced this joy. No, the joy is theirs. It belongs to them. They have it in full. They don't need to go searching for it. They don't say, I broke it and I need a new one. It's theirs. It belongs to them. And then he commands them to ask. If they ask the Father for this joy, the Father will give it to them. To this point, they've asked nothing. Jesus says, you've asked nothing in my name. I think this literally means they've asked nothing. It's not like they just ask for minuscule things or things that don't really matter. They've asked nothing. They've asked him for nothing. They've walked with Jesus. They've heard him teach. They've watched him perform signs. But they haven't asked. Now in verse 24, Jesus commands them to ask for the joy and the comfort that comes through seeing what? Through seeing the resurrected Christ. And they will receive the joy. And they do not receive the joy until chapter 21, right at the end of this book, when they see him walking towards them on the beach. But there they will have it in full and no one will be able to take it from them. This is profoundly simple. If you're like, what are we talking about? This is profoundly simple. Jesus tells the disciples to ask for joy in his name. That's what this is about. Jesus tells the disciples to ask for this joy in his name. Friends, have you considered that your prayerlessness might be the source of your joylessness? Have you considered that your prayerlessness might be the the source of your joylessness? Man, I was grumpy yesterday. And my wife reminded me, she said, 10 days from now is the shortest day of the year. But I thought, I, I have not. And so, like, that's the, like, the darkness at 3.30. And, like, but even this morning, thinking to myself, Jesus, show me yourself. The resurrected Christ before me. What is an hour or two or seven hours of less sunlight? in the middle of December. Show me the light of the world. The thrust of what Jesus says isn't what we do. The thrust of Jesus telling his disciples to pray, to ask for the joy, isn't what you do, it's what he's done. Our prayer is not a couple of quarters into the vending machine hoping for a small bag of Funyuns to get us through to the next meal. 
Our prayer is an earnest plea to a loving father in the name of the son for something that only he can provide, a joy that cannot be taken. You have a relationship with your heavenly father if you're in Christ. Pray for joy. The disciples did not ask what Jesus meant when he was going away. See this with me. The disciples did not ask Jesus, and yet he gave them an answer. How much more will the Father give joy to those who ask in the name of the Son? Unrevealed truth promised, unasked questions answered. And finally, we see in this text an irreversible peace given. Jesus' words, now he's speaking plainly. He gives the disciples peace. This is the design of the words. He says in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Jesus gives peace. Jesus knows exactly where the disciples need to hear, exactly when they need to hear it, in order to not be worried or anxious. He says that they will be scattered, that the events that are about to take place when they go into the garden They come to arrest Jesus. They all go away to their own house. They go away to different places where even Peter will deny Jesus three times. And they say, and he says to them, I say these things that to you, that you in me, that you may have peace. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be in turmoil. You're going to wonder what's going on. You're going to wonder, they crucify me. They wonder if they're they're coming for me next. They saw you with me. That's enough for them to want to kill you. The world has hated me, so it will hate you. Jesus knows exactly what the disciples need to hear in the midst of that worry and anxiety and is fully aware of the hatred they will endure, the persecution and the exile. They'll be kicked out of the the synagogues. They'll be kicked out of their homeland. They'll be kicked out of their city and the death that they will face. And he tells them in verse 33, in this world you will have tribulation, but then, Take heart, I have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, we must recognize that Jesus never promises a life of comfort or ease. He never promises that we step into the world and it's a cakewalk. In fact, he tells the disciples that things will be quite the opposite. That's what we looked at last week. But this week, Jesus says to over, that he has overcome the world. He says, take heart. And that's not actually a word that we don't usually say, take heart. But what he says or what he means is, cheer up. He says, be confident. He says, don't be afraid. Why? 
Because your physical realities may seem uncertain, hopeless, or, uh, or out of control, and you may feel exhausted or beaten down, anxious, worried, frustrated. You may wonder what's coming next. Could it get any worse? Friends, Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Jesus gives his followers peace by giving them the confidence that he has overcome the world. You don't need to look around at what other, what, uh, anything other than Jesus Christ for peace. As Christians, sometimes we can be a bit mopey, and I'm probably over or understating that. But sometimes spending time with other Christians, can you feel like everything's kind of coming apart? Sometimes we're turning over rocks, looking over for more doom and gloom. We say, the end is nigh, we're really in for it now. But Jesus says, even in the face of terrible circumstances in the world around you, Christians are to be marked by joy and peace to ask. Two things that Jesus gives freely, and two things that are given to every believer in full, If you look outside uh, of Jesus for joy, if you look for joy outside of what Jesus says here, you won't find it. Joy that comes through meeting the resurrected Christ. Joy that no one can take away. If you look for peace outside of what Jesus says here, you will not find it. Peace that comes through knowing that Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Peace that cannot be reversed. There are a few things that we can take away from this passage this morning. I'll give you three of them as we conclude our time. Three things that I want you to think about as you go from this place, as you digest this passage throughout the course of this week in this Christmas season. The first is this. The timing of Jesus' words is perfect. The timing of Jesus' words is perfect. We can know that through the Holy Spirit, that Jesus reveals exactly what we, what you need to know, exactly when you need to know it. Exactly what you need to hear, exactly when you need to hear it. What you read in Scripture this week is exactly what you needed, exactly when you needed it. Us as a church, considering a passage of Scripture together like this one, John chapter 16, verses 12 through 33, we trust that for us as a body, for us as a group of believers set apart in Jamestown, North Dakota, for God's purposes here, that this is what God wants for us to hear. On December 11th of 2022. At 11.06. Is that right? Alright. Yes. This is why we study through books of the Bible on a Sunday morning. Where we walk through, read the passage, preach from the passage. Trying to understand the simple meaning of the text before us. Now going off on tangents, not taking you into different 
realms of understanding, but what's right here in front of us. These are the words of God. I think I know many of you well in this room. Some of you not as much, but that's fine. But I don't know any of you like Jesus knows you. I don't know my wife and my children even that much compared to how Jesus knows them. So we pray, we pick a book, and we start preaching that the word do the work. So be encouraged. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave you guessing. He illuminates to us God's word. And it comes to us just in the same way that we can say, like the disciples say, now you are speaking plainly. The timing of Jesus' words is perfect. Second, bring your requests to the Father in the name of the Son. That is to say, in other words, pray. Bring your requests to the Father in the name of the Son. Pray. You are, it's a busy time of year. You're probably feeling a little bit buried under all of the things to do and all of the places that you need to go and every direction that you feel like you're being pulled. You're moving so fast and because that's true of many of us, we rarely pray. Now, sometimes we say, I've got downtime, I've got like drive time and I've got in-between meetings and I pray there. But friends, let me encourage you that we should be a little more intentional with our prayer than just some throwaway moments where we don't have anything better to do. It's fine if you pray in those moments. You should. But find time. Because our biggest struggle with prayer is that it doesn't feel productive. If you came home from a long day at work and there are dishes piled in the sink and the house is ordered about her and your spouse said that they spent the last 20 minutes in prayer instead of tidying up, how would you respond? I spent the last 20 minutes in prayer. You could have done the dishes. Once when asked about his plans for the day, Martin Luther said, work, work. From early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. What Jesus says here should shatter our incorrect notion that prayer is not productive. We are commanded to pray. To ask for the joy that comes from seeing the resurrected Christ. Joylessness will certainly be the result of prayerlessness. Ask to see Jesus and you will have joy. Final thing I want you to take away is everything that Jesus has promised, he has accomplished. Everything that Jesus has promised, he has accomplished. And in other words, Jesus has overcome the world. Friends, you can have real lasting peace.
peace and joy. And Jesus here reveals how. This is the revelation of how we as Christians have peace and joy. And in the midst of whatever difficulty you face may feel more overwhelming now than ever because of the holiday season, peace and joy are yours because Jesus has overcome the world. If there was 1% of the world that Jesus had not overcome, if there was 0.1% of the world that Jesus had overcome. If there was 0.0000001% of the world that Jesus had not overcome, then ignore these words. But Jesus cannot lie. So there's no rogue corner of the world. There's no small section of your life. There's nothing in all of creation That falls outside of what Jesus says here. There's no moment that you will experience in your lifetime in all of human history that sits outside of what Jesus says. In verse 33, take heart, I have overcome the world. And so if this week you look at the calendar this afternoon and you're like, oh my gosh, look at all of this stuff. Look at everything. Look at all of these things that are coming apart in my life. Are you tempted to despair? If you think about the upcoming week, the work or a coworker that you have to go into the office and deal with, it's really worn you down. Or time spent with infuriating family members over the holidays. Or sickness or death that has marked your 2022. Or an economic downturn that has left you wondering how you're going to make ends meet or buy a Christmas present for one of your kids. Or the strain on your marriage or wayward children. Or stress of finals week. Hear Jesus' word. Take heart. I have overcome the world. To the soul in turmoil, Jesus promises peace. To the soul in sorrow, Jesus tells you to ask for joy. During the holidays, we may sing joy to the world. Sang it this morning. And peace on earth dozens of times. Here's what joy to the world and peace on earth hinges on. Here's what joy to the world and peace on earth hinges on. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words of Jesus that for those of us who forget to ask and who are so quick to disregard you and your word. God, you answer the questions. God, you show us clearly, revealing yourself to us so that we might have peace and joy. God, would we be marked this week by prayer. Prayer asking to see the resurrected Jesus in order that we might have joy. A joy that cannot be taken from us. God, would you take us this week and shape us into people? Not people who are are frustrated by the circumstances around us, but recognize fully that you, Jesus Christ, have overcome the world. 
And there are so many things that we are bogged down by that we face this week. Too many things even in this room to mention. Too many things to take and to digest. And if any one person in this room were to take all of the cares upon them from everyone else in this room, God, we would not be able to bear it. But God, you call us and tell us to cast all of your cares upon you. God, would you cause us to do so now? In Jesus' name we pray.